I'm Joel Chasnoff, and this is Inside Israel. It's February 20th, 2024, and tonight's episode is called The Messenger is the Message. And in a moment, I'm going to explain exactly what that means about messengers and messages. But first, I actually have two small requests for you. So the first request is I am really trying to promote this podcast and get the word out there. I think a lot of people would be interested in the content if only they knew it existed. So the request I have from you is to go to the links I'm going to put up right now. These are the links for the podcast on Apple and on Spotify. And if at some point, either now or at the end, just go there and give the podcast a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. Ideally, it would be the highest rating. If you're joining every week, it does mean that you're enjoying this and liking it. But these ratings are really vital in terms of getting the podcast out there. Believe it or not, Apple, Google, Spotify, they do not listen to every episode when deciding which podcast to push out to people. They base it pretty much entirely on algorithms based on the ratings that you give it. So to the extent that you can go on there and give it a rating, it really helps spread the word. So I'm going to put those links in right now once more. You can go to both of them. That would be ideal, Apple and Spotify, but certainly one of them, whichever one you use, and give it a rating that would help so much. And I'll remind you at the end as well when we conclude. The second request I have for um, all of you is I'm going to ask you to email me your answer to this question. So believe it or not, I'm actually considering expanding this podcast and doing more episodes. The idea being that these would be explainer episodes. For example, Israeli government explained, the Israeli army explained. 20 minutes at a time, and I would just give you an insight in how some of these basics of Israeli society work. A lot of the questions that you guys are sending me is, how come there's so much chaos in the government? Or how does the army manage to draft thousands of teenagers every year and do it efficiently? And believe me, there are actually systems to these and answers. And so what I'm considering doing is recording these 20 to 25 minute explainer episodes, and then pushing them out, but I want to know that people would actually be interested. So I'm going to put my email address right here. If you're listening online, it's just joel at joelchaznoff.com. Drop me a note. Let me know if you would be interested in this kind of content. And the particular question I have is, would you listen even if it weren't live? So I might record these on my own on a Sunday morning and just post it online as a podcast. Would you still listen or would you only want to listen if it were done live just like it is here. So those are my two requests for you, rating the podcast and letting me know if you'd be interested in these some of, the, of these explainer episodes to balance out the content that I'm giving you here. Okay. So now onto the episode itself. And as I said, the title of tonight's episode is The Messenger is the Message. And I'm going to share three stories, examples of how the message is as important, perhaps even more important than the action itself. And it's based on a very important premise, which I really want you to understand, but which you might not intuitively know. I certainly didn't until I lived in Israel for a while. It's that in the Middle East, people speak a different language. And I don't just mean Hebrew or Arabic. I mean a language in terms of how they relate to each other as people, and more specifically, how peoples 
and how nations relate to each other. It's very different from how countries like the US, the UK, and those we might call the traditional West relate to each other. There's a lot more nuance, a lot more signaling, and a lot more reading between the lines in the Middle East. And what that means is that when you take an action, it's not just about the action, it's about the message you are sending. And in the Middle East, the content of that message is so vital to what plays out next. And oftentimes people will say one thing, but they'll actually mean something else. Now, this is ironic because in Israel, on a personal level, it's the opposite. In Israel, people are very straightforward. They mean what they say, and they say what, the what they mean. So on a one-on-one -on -one level, you always know what people are thinking in Israel. We have a term for this. It's called dugriut. That's actually an Arabic word. That means straight. Now, in Arabic, interestingly enough, dugriut means straight in terms of a direction. If you were getting directions from someone and they wanted you to go straight, they'd say dugri, 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 and then turn right. Dugri means straight in terms of the direction you're headed. But in modern Hebrew slang, dugri and dugriut means straight to the point in terms of speech, which is actually the opposite. In Arabic, there isn't that sort of dugriut in terms of speech. In Arabic, it's much more fluid and people, uh, there's a lot more nuance and uh, misunderstanding or, or lack of clarity. They'll say one thing, but sort of mean another. In Israel, among the Jewish population, in Hebrew, it's straight to the point on a personal level. However, between nations, it's more of this Arab culture style of relating to each other, where you say one thing, but you have to read between the lines to really decipher what the other person is meaning. And I'm going to give you some examples uh, of this. So when Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, recently said, here's his exact quote translated into English from Nasrallah. He said, if the enemy thinks of a waging a war on Lebanon, we will fight without restraint. I'll say that again. If the enemy thinks of waging a war on Lebanon, we will fight without restraint. Now, them sounds like fighting words. That sounds very tough. But you have to read between the lines and parse that a bit. What Nasrallah is saying there is, if the enemy thinks of waging a war on Lebanon, we will respond. We will fight without restraint. What he's really saying right there is, we have no intention of starting a war. If there is a war, it will be because Israel starts it. But he's signaling, whether he intends to or not, that Hezbollah actually does not want an all-out war right now. Now, that does not mean they're not going to get it. Pretty much everyone in Israel is certain that there will be a war with Hezbollah. It could be next week, and it could be in five years. No one is really sure when, but the certainty is that we must have a war with Hezbollah at some point for our own safety. But we're also reading from Nasrallah when we read between the lines that Hezbollah actually doesn't want a war itself. And we're seeing this. If they'd wanted a war, they had their chance. They would have attacked when we were at our weakest point on October 8th, 9th, 10th, but they didn't. And the reason we know that is you have to read between the lines. You have to hear the actual message, not just the words you're hearing. Uh, here's another example, and this is kind of a, a well-known uh, example. 
This happened at Camp David in the year 2000 when uh, Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat were conducting peace talks. And there was a famous moment where President Clinton was ushering Arafat and Ehud Barak, then the Prime Minister of Israel, into the negotiating room. And both of those men, Barak and Arafat, offered to the other one to enter the room first. Arafat wanted Barak to go in first, and Ehud Barak wanted Arafat to go in first. And it actually became a struggling match. Both leaders refused to be the first one in the room. Now, why would that be? It's because in the Middle East, the message is very important. And in the Middle East, whoever enters the room first is signaling that they are the guest. They are the weaker one. They are vulnerable. And both of those leaders knew that. So neither one wanted to be the first one entering the room. It was so important that the other guy be the first to enter. And Clinton didn't really understand what was going on, finally took both and shoved them into the room together, which I think brings up a larger point here is that so many of our Western leaders and diplomats who claim to be experts on the Middle East actually don't fully understand this message element of Middle East politics. They don't understand the subtext that is so important into understanding what Middle Eastern peoples and leaders actually mean when they behave and when they speak. So that is why I'm gonna share stories about messaging today because to really understand what's happening in Israel right now, whether it's the war, the hostages or politics in Israel, you need to understand the message itself what's being projected, not just the actions on the ground. So let's look at the first story of messaging, and that is the war in Gaza itself. You know, once upon a time, when Israel or Israelis were attacked, pardon my French here, but I'm going to have to swear. Only rarely do I swear on this podcast, but this time I think it's valid. Once upon a time when Israel or Israelis were attacked, the Israeli army went batshit crazy and attacked in response with overwhelming force to teach the enemy a lesson that you cannot mess with Israel. So what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about the raid on Entebbe in 1976. An Air France airliner is hijacked, taken to Entebbe in Uganda. And what does the Israeli army do to rescue not just the Israeli hostages, but the Jewish hostages, really sending the signal that we are the army of the Jewish people, not just the army of Israel? Get this. If you don't know the story, it's fascinating. July 4th, 1976, America's bicentennial. The Israeli army smuggles a black Mercedes-Benz into Uganda. How is that even possible? And they outsmart the Ugandan troops and enter the airline terminal and rescue all of the hostages by shooting the terrorists dead. The only casualty in this raid was Yonatan Netanyahu, may his memory be for a blessing, the older brother of our prime minister now, Bibi Netanyahu. And if you wanna get some insight into who Yoni Netanyahu was, I highly recommend his book, Self-Portrait of a Hero. It is one of my all-time favorite books and I read it and reread it over and over in high school. He was a prolific letter writer, which, I got to tell you, it's entered my mind. I'm not sure that would happen in this day and age, <laughs> in this day and age of texts and emails and Snapchat. But 
he was a prolific letter writer. And after his death, they collected all of Yoni's letters into a book. And you get such a sense of Ahavat HaMedina, the love of the land, the love of Israel from his book. But this is an example of not just a daring raid, but a message to the enemy. When you hijack and you capture Jews and Israelis, we rescue them and we will do whatever it takes. We will respond. I'm thinking of the tracking down of the murderers of the Munich Olympics in 1972, when they killed Israelis, uh, Israel's Olympic team members. We tracked them down. It didn't happen overnight, but we found them. And that is what Israel did. Also, of course, our blowing up of various nuclear facilities in Iran, the famous air raid that Ilan Ramon, our astronaut who was killed in flight uh, aboard, I believe it was the Columbia. He was one of the fighter pilots in that attack in uh, Iran. And we've had other incidents where we were able to blow up Iran's nuclear facilities and factories. And one of the best stories is that the flooring that was installed in one of these nuclear facilities was actually laced with bombs. Israel ahead of time was able to figure out what was going on. And the best way to attack is to lay your dynamite before it's even built. And so they were able to lay explosives into the floor of the whatever, the blocks, the tiles that were being installed in this nuclear facility. And at the right time, they were able to blow it up. So this is what Israel did. And I think Israel has gotten a little soft. And this is natural as it becomes part of world diplomacy and a more Western country and a high-tech nation that's more accepted by the rest of the world economically. But I think it's time to return to our badass roots. And that is why I really believe in my opinion, that we need to pursue this war to the very end. Now, believe me, we should do all we can to prevent the further deaths of innocent civilians in Gaza. And certainly, if it were my child who were being held hostage in Gaza, I might have a different opinion here. But I really believe that we need to push pedal to the metal and go all out and defeat Hamas in this war. And there's a few reasons why. Number one is that the war is going much better than is being portrayed in the news, even in the Israeli media. I'm talking to soldiers who are coming back, and they're telling me that we are, we are destroying Hamas. Hamas militants are surrendering when IDF troops are approaching their hideouts because they know that they will not survive. Our overwhelming force is getting to them. Now, every time, you know, we hear a lot about deaths in Gaza, but what you might not be hearing about a lot in the U.S. is the number of Hamas militants that we are capturing alive and then questioning for intelligence. And this, this alone is a huge reason to keep pursuing the war, to get the intelligence about how Hamas operates, how our enemies think, and what they are planning for down the line. And also, this could help us in terms of rescuing hostages. It is becoming more and more clear that diplomacy is not the way we are going to get the hostages back. If it were, it would have happened by now. But why is Hamas asking for a complete ceasefire? Not a 45-day ceasefire, not a 60-day ceasefire. Why is Hamas asking for a complete ceasefire? Because they smell defeat. They know that there is no other chance for their literal survival. And so that is why they are asking for an end to the war. And that is also why we cannot give it to them. But most of all, we need to send that message to our enemies that when you attack, we come back hard 
and we finished the job. Now, am I glad that upwards of 29,000 Gazans have been killed? I was about to say civilians, but let's keep in mind, those aren't necessarily civilians. Because when Hamas or the Gaza-run health ministry, which is Hamas, when they count their deaths, they put everyone together. They do not separate militants in Hamas from the civilian population. So we're at 29,000 right now, but the IDF is estimating that about 12,000 of those, which is just under half, but 12,000 are Hamas militants. We've destroyed most of their brigades. The only brigades of Hamas that remain are, for the most part, in the south, in Rafiach, which is the next big battle and really the final battle for the IDF. But we need to send this message to the rest of our enemies that we finished the job. And this is a message for Hezbollah, because Hezbollah knows now that if they start a war with us, we will destroy Beirut. They know. We've signaled that. The International Court of Justice at The Hague, we need to send a signal to them that, yes, you can pass your little, uh, your little resolutions and knock your gavel and tell us what to do, but we are not going to listen. We are going to finish the job. So this is why I think that it's so important that we keep on pushing in this war. It is the only hope for getting the hostages back. And more importantly, it is the message we need to send to our enemies, because this is the language that is spoken in the Middle East. The Middle East is not a region of diplomacy and negotiation. It is only by force that our enemies respond to us. And if you look at all the peace treaties we've had in the past, it was after shows of force that we were able to bring them to the table. Now, of course, our diplomats don't get it, and by no means do college students in America understand this, but this is the reality that Israel lead, uh, is living with, and we need to send that signal that when you mess with us, we finish the job. Okay, so that's message number one, the war. Message number two. We had an incident this week in Israel where Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is the right-wing politician, the head of the police, he is calling on, he is saying that on Ramadan, we should not allow any Muslims up onto the Temple Mount. This includes citizens of Israel who are Muslim during Ramadan. I don't agree with this. The Shin Bet, Israel's internal security service, does not agree with this. They said they said this would just play into Hamas's hands. Because let's remember, since October 7th, support for Hamas has increased 300% in the West Bank. We should also remember that on October 7th, Hamas called upon Israel's Arab citizens to rise up against the Jewish Israelis. And they did not. Now, in May 2021, when we had Guardian of the Walls, there was a lot of fighting between Israel's Arab population and Israel's Jewish population. And Hamas assumed that on October 7th, they would have these 2 million Muslims, 2 million Arabs inside Israel who could attack the Jewish population. But they did not. And in various surveys, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, Israel's Arab population has said that Given the chance to live anywhere else in the world, 60% of our Arab population in Israel says that they would continue to live in Israel. And when it comes to the Jewish population, it's probably something like 70%. It's not that much higher. So right now, we actually have good relations with the Arab population inside Israel. And if Itamar Ben-Gvir gets his way and we bar 
our Arab population, our Arab citizens from visiting the Temple Mount, this plays right into Hamas's hands and will be creating an enemy who is living within our borders. So partly it's about the action, but more so it's about the message that we are sending to the 2 million non-Jews living in Israel. If this goes through, and the Prime Minister Netanyahu has already said he supports it, if this goes through, we would be sending a message to them that we do not include them in our vision of the future of Israel, that we do not see them as equals. And that is a very dangerous step. And that's also why the Attorney General is recommending against it. The Shin Bet Internal Security Service is recommending against it, which brings the question, why would Netanyahu support it? And the reason is because his political future depends on these relationships with these far-right ministers, two in particular, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bitsalel Smotrich, the finance minister. He loses them, he loses his coalition, and he's out of power. So this is a case where we are sending the absolute wrong message to our Arab population, but also to other countries around the world. We're sending the message that we don't have freedom of religion, that we do discriminate, that certain citizens don't have the same rights as other citizens. And it plays into that argument of apartheid, which we have been working so hard to refute. So that's the second example of where the message is so powerful. And we need to be careful about the message that we're sending. Finally, there is Yoni Netan uh, sorry, there is Benjamin Netanyahu himself, our prime minister. And the message that Israel is sending him out to the world by his remaining prime minister. You know, as you know, my intention when starting this podcast, these conversations, was to try to be as apolitical as possible and simply give you the facts and the news from the perspective of Israelis. But the truth is, the perspective of Israelis is 80% of Israelis want Netanyahu to step down. They are against him. They don't trust him. And I don't think that that 80% number really captures what Israelis are feeling. If you talk to Israelis on the street, it's not just that they disapprove of Netanyahu. It's that they are reviled by him. They turn off the television when he comes on. They find him so repulsive that they want to pull their hair out. They are so frustrated that we have this leader who time and again seems to be doing things that go against the will of the public and the health of the country. The example I just gave you is one incident among many. The idea that our internal security service is saying it would be a bad idea to bar our Arab population from visiting the Temple Mount, and yet he would do it any anyway. The fact that he did not consult with the other two generals in his war cabinet, Gans and Eisenkot. He didn't consult with them before deciding that he was not going to send another negotiating team to Cairo. And Eisenkot and Gans were furious when they found out that we were no longer negotiating for the release of the hostages. It's another example of Netanyahu stepping over the will of the people for what many believe is his own political survival. You know, Biden, it was in the news in Israel a lot in the past week that Biden called Netanyahu an asshole in private conversations. 
Well, I got to tell you, a lot of Israelis feel that way about Netanyahu as well. And my point here is that your leader is also your messenger. And one of the reasons that Israel is having so much difficulty right now on the world stage is that our leader is not liked by just about everyone. And it makes it so much more difficult for us to move forward, whether it's with our plans for the war or getting sales of arms approved to us or simply getting our message out about why we need to fight this war after October 7th. It makes it more difficult when we have the leader that we do who is so disliked by so much of the rest of the world. Now, I'm the last person to say that just because the world doesn't like you, that means you have to change your behavior. But the fact that 80% of Israelis don't trust Netanyahu, want him out, want a new leader, and that everyone knows that as soon as this war over is over, that he will be out. That is why I think that we need new elections now, and we need a chance to at least select the leader we want moving forward. And incidentally, in the polls that just came out in Israel, they found that if elections were held right now, the anti-Likud coalition would get 76 seats in the Knesset. Now, remember, you only need 61 to have a majority. And I think Netanyahu is holding on right now with, what, 64? But the anti-Likud bloc would have 76, led by the Blue and White Party. That's Benny Gantz's party, who I've said before, I believe, will be the next prime minister of Israel when we do finally get a chance to vote. So that's the third example of where the message that you're sending to the world is just as important, if not more important, than the actions on the ground itself. We need the world, we need the US's support, and it's going to be very increasingly difficult to get that support when we have a leader who is so disliked by the rest of the world and the US in particular. But if there's one thing I want you to come away with from this, it's how important messaging is in the Middle East that the signals you send and the messages you send to other peoples and, and your enemies in particular are vital to your future. And we have to start sending the right messages. Okay, so some news that I want to go through real, uh, real quick. You know, one of the big stories was medications. We had the Red Cross broker a deal where medications would be sent to Israeli hostages in Gaza. This was in January that this deal finally went through. Only now, in the last 48 hours, has Hamas acknowledged that they've received these medications and will start distributing these medications to our Israeli hostages who need them. Everything from diabetes medication to uh, yeast infection medication and everything in between. These are vital medications that have been withheld, have not made it to our Israeli citizens, and I guarantee you, if this were any other people, the Red Cross would be much more involved in making sure medications reached who they needed to reach. Uh, but only now in the last 48 hours is Hamas saying that they will start to distribute these medications. Hasn't happened until now. I mentioned the poll that Benny Gantz, Blue and White Party, and his coalition would have 76 seats if elections were held today. Also today, a U.S. Uh, the, the U.S. vetoed a resolution in the United Nations calling for a ceasefire in the United Nations. And, uh, you know, I just find this absolutely ridiculous that we would even need to do that. You know, Israel was attacked on October 7th, and defending itself, and now the U.N. is calling for a ceasefire without even saying that the hostages need to be returned. They have mentioned the hostages, but they're not really 
strongly putting down their foot on the uh, return of the hostages. The idea that Israel is at fault here and the U.S. needs to veto um, is something I find absolutely ridiculous. The United States has hinted that they might unilaterally recognize a Palestinian state. So what exactly does that mean? Uh, a number of countries are saying this, but now the U.S. is uh, is joining and is on board, basically saying that they would recognize a Palestinian state without Israel needing to approve, without Israel needing to buy in. A lot of Israelis are against this, and Netanyahu himself is he's bragging that he's the one who's prevented a Palestinian state for the past 10 years and or decades and decades. And what he keeps saying is that we cannot give the Palestinians this gift, this reward of a Palestinian state after October 7th. But I'll tell you, this is one area where I actually do not agree with the majority of Israelis. I do not see a Palestinian state as a gift for October 7th. I think we need to stop thinking about a Palestinian state as a gift to them and start seeing it as an opportunity for us. Once we have a Palestinian state, then you have Palestinian responsibility. Right now, all the world is calling on Israel to take action because we are really the only legitimate actor here. Hamas is not a legitimate actor. That's why the world is not calling upon Hamas to put down its arms or to stop firing rockets at Israel or even to release the hostages or give medications because they know that Hamas is really not worth talking to. They are not powerful and legitimate actors. The minute we have a Palestinian state that is demilitarized, that's what everyone is saying. This would be a demilitarized Palestinian state. Well, at that point, then there's finally responsibility on the other side. And we can have separation. And we need that. We need to be separate from our enemies. Netanyahu will not be the one to allow for a Palestinian state. That's why it wouldn't happen on Israel's watch. This is why it would have to be unilateral. And in many ways, I think this is a good idea. The one major obstacle is that we do have settlers in the West Bank. And those settlers would have to be forcefully relocated, if not removed completely. And I don't know how that would happen. Uh, I think if that were to happen, that is when we would see some of that violence, Jew on Jew violence that I've mentioned before. I've said before that I would not be surprised if in the next five years there is an assassination of an Israeli leader by a Jew or just serious Jew on Jew violence. And um, I think it would be by one of these West Bank extremist factions who this week were torching Palestinian cars and looting Palestinian villages. And this goes unchecked. They are not arrested for this. Or if they are arrested, they're released once again. They basically, it's the wild, wild west in the West Bank. And the hard part would be getting these settlers out. But I do believe that we all know how the story ends, whether it's in six months or in 60 years or beyond. The way this story ends is that there is a Palestinian state that is separate from the Jewish state of Israel. The sooner we can have that, the better, on the condition that it's demilitarized. And that's what everyone is saying. So I actually, for the record, I'm in favor of this, even though most Israelis are not. I want to get to your questions. A lot of people wrote in with questions, and I want to, uh, want to get to them. 
I like these, these questions are changing, you know, it used to be very straightforward one sentence questions, but now the questions that are coming in are a lot more philosophical and they're really digging into the nuance of Israel and the Middle East. And uh, as you see, they're, they're getting more complicated and I, I welcome that. So here's our first question. Listening to your podcast a few weeks ago, I realized that it might be good to talk about the difference between right wing or conservative in Israel and conservative in the U.S. I would imagine that a number of your listeners might be Republican, probably less than Democrats, but nonetheless dedicated to learning about the differences. As my, meaning my political comments, become more pervasive, it seems important to teach Americans that politics in the U.S. and the names used for that are not the same as politics in Israel. And this comes from Leslie, who is in Southern California. And that's a great point. So let me parse that out a little bit. When I talk about the right wing in Israel, I am not talking about pro-life or pro-gun or even that the economic burden should be more on the individual and less help from the state. That's sort of like how we think of right wing in the United States. In Israel, right wing, for the most part, refers to religious. So the right wing, you can equate that with the idea that Judaism is more a part of daily life and legal life in Israel. For example, no transportation on Shabbat. Restaurants that are open on Shabbat cannot be kosher, not because of the ingredients in their food, but simply being open on Shabbat is enough to make a restaurant non-kosher, which, by the way, is true right now. If you have a vegan restaurant in Tel Aviv, but someone who is not Jewish is the first one to turn on the stove in the morning, that restaurant cannot be kosher, regardless of the food that you are serving. At its most extreme, the right wing believe that Israel should be all of the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. That means all of Gaza and the West Bank. So some are even calling for the resettling of Gaza and would be happy to settle all of the West Bank. So basically, all the laws pointing in the direction of making Israel as Jewish as possible, that is what by, I mean by right wing when referring to right wing in Israel. And the two real big faces of the right wing are, as I mentioned before, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Metzalel Smotrich. So it's not necessarily with respect to business, but it's Judaism and Jewish law. That is what the right wing stands for. What does the left wing stand for? Well, that's a little more similar, I think. It's more progressive uh, peace with neighboring countries, of course, with safety uh, as, a, as a precondition. Separation of synagogue and state. You know, right now there is no intermarriage in Israel. If if a Christian Arab falls in love with a Jew, or for the for that matter, if a Christian Arab falls in love with a Muslim Arab in Israel, they cannot get married in Israel. They would have to go to Cyprus or Greece. Their marriage would be recognized once they're back in Israel, but they can't actually get married in Israel itself. Um, what else did the left push for? You know. Adoption, surrogacy for same-sex couples, uh, same-sex marriage, which is not right now allowed in Israel. So more progressive issues in the separation of synagogue and state. That's more what the left stands for. Uh, so that is a good question, but I, I think it's important to understand that left and right in the United States are different from left and right in Israel. Thank you, Leslie, for asking me to point that out. Our next question comes from Stephen. Stephen writes, unity against something is much different than unity for something. We have a unity right now in Israel that's directed against them, 
but is not critical of ourselves or even looking at our own history or what we're doing wrong, how we might be to blame. He says, I want Israel to wake up and behave in a way that is constructive, not self-destructive. This, this current unity that we see in Israel could be, he says, self-destructive. Could it be that Israelis create enemies to keep themselves unified? Well, that's a very complicated question. I don't think that Israel necessarily creates unities to stay unified, but I will say two things. Number one, there is a certain unity that comes over Israel and Israelis when we experience conflict. I'll even say that one of the most special times to be in Israel is when there is a war happening. I wish that weren't true. It says bizarre and even a little bit sick to say that, but there's something really amazing about how the country comes together in times of war and conflict and when the country is threatened. I've spoken on this podcast so many times about the amazing work that Israelis are doing, volunteering, high-tech companies developing apps to help with the identification of hostages, to help soldiers get to their bases, even high school students picking fruits and vegetables in the South. I mean, Israelis are volunteering and coming together in an amazing way that you really don't see in normal times. Israelis are a very bonded people in general, but all the more so during times of conflict and war. So there is something to be said about unity against an enemy bringing out the best of Israelis. But there's another element to it too, is that certain politicians know that the best way to unify the country and to stay in power is to have conflict. And I do believe that BB sees this right now. I do believe that Netanyahu knows that when this war is over, he's out. And so it behooves him to keep the war going as long as possible. It behooves him to keep our enemies on the other side of the border and not do introspection about ourselves. And I think uh, our politicians, certain politicians more than others, certainly know that Israelis come together in times of conflict. And so they can exploit that. I personally believe that Netanyahu is exploiting that right now. Barbara writes, perhaps I'm being naive, but would Netanyahu sacrifice the welfare of so many others for his own political motives? I know he was devastated by his own brother's death at Entebbe, as you mentioned. So wouldn't he want to prevent that type of tragedy for as many others as possible, not to mention concern for the remaining hostages? So the essence of Barbara's question is, would Netanyahu sacrifice the welfare of others, of Israelis, for his own political motives? I, to me, the answer is obvious, and the answer is yes. And we're seeing that with the decision to not allow our own Arab citizens to go to the Temple Mount during Ramadan. Now, this isn't a final decision, but he has signaled that he agrees with this resolution put forth by Ben Gvir. He's doing so against the advice of the Shin Bet, the security service. I want to take you back to this summer. July, August, September, when his own chief of staff and army officers and the Shin Bet were all advising him to stop the push for judicial reform because it was weakening the IDF. It was causing division within Israel and giving our enemies an opportunity to attack. And he ignored them. So Barbara, 
I would have to say that we've already seen that Netanyahu will put his own good, his own political motives before the welfare of the country. I don't have to pontificate and speculate. We've already seen it. And one of the reasons October 7th was able to happen was because of all the chaos that he sowed with judicial reform, not just the division within the country, but on a military level. We had to allocate a number of military battalions that are normally stationed in the south. We had to move them to the West Bank because of all the unrest that was happening there from Itamar Ben-Gvir's statements and visiting the Temple Mount. And so we literally pulled forces from the south and put them in the West Bank because of all this chaos. And that's one of the reasons we didn't have enough force there in the south. So, yeah, I, I do believe that Netanyahu would put the welfare, would sacrifice the welfare of his own citizens and, and even the hostages. Because the minute the hostages come back, if we were to get all hostages back tomorrow, Netanyahu would be out of power very soon. That's just a calculus that he's taking into account. I might lose a lot of subscribers after this one, but I'm just telling you the way I see it, my friends. A different Barbara asked, I read reports from Israel last week that 32 of the hostages were deceased. With the two who were rescued last week, that would bring the total number of hostages down to 102. Do we have an accurate count of the hostages and any info on the hostages in Gaza right now? So the New York Times has reported that not just that 32 have been killed, but possibly even more than that. When Israel thinks of hostages, we actually think of everyone, living and dead. We think of the bodies, because it's really against the idea of, of Judaism to leave a dead body not tended to. We want the dead bodies back as well. We have a few soldiers who were killed in 2014, I believe, whose bodies are still being held in Gaza, and we have not gotten those back. And we count those among the hostages as well. So, and when we hear the count, you know, in the 130s, those are all hostages dead and alive. But I do believe right now that we are talking in terms of the number of living to about just over 100. Personally, I think it's a lot less than that. We just don't have accurate information. And that leads us to the next question that someone wrote in. Their question was, could you comment on the video clip that's now circulating of Shiri Babas and her two children, the Shiri Bibas and the two children? These are the redheaded children, the Jinjis, who've sort of become the, the poster childs of not just the hostages, but of how ferocious Hamas could be kidnapping this nine-month-old who turned one in captivity. And we got video this week of Shiri Bibas and her two children in Khan Yunis, which means they made it all the way to Khan Yunis in the center of the country. When I say made it, they were taken forcefully. In this video, if you haven't seen it, probably a lot of you have. Uh, she is covered by some sort of sheet, and you see a little bit of red hair uh, popping out. Do we know their whereabouts now? No, the IDF spokesman Agari has said that we do not have information on that right now. Hamas has stated that they were killed in an airstrike. They've stated that other hostages were killed as well, and certain <laughs> ones of these hostages came back alive to Israel. We do have to wonder why they were not released during the first 
prisoner release when women and children were let out? Why weren't the Bebus children and the wife released? Now, the husband is still in captivity as well. Why weren't the women and children released? We don't know. We do believe right now they're actually being held not by Hamas, but by Islamic Jihad. It's also been speculated that perhaps they're being held on to because our enemies have realized that they are the hostages who are perhaps most important to us and most emblematic, and so they want to hold them as bargaining chips. And it could just be that they have been killed and that they cannot be returned for that reason. So no one knows for sure why they have not returned to Israel along with the other women and children who were let out. And there are other women and children who were not released. Um, I wish we had more information. Believe me, the minute I find out anything, I'll share it with all of you and you'll probably know it first. But that is all we know for now is that they were taken to Khan Yunus. And from there, we don't know where they are. And the second part of that question is, did Israel just discover this video? Was it transferred to Israel in order to inflict more psychological trauma? No, this is not one of those videos, as far as I know, that was passed on to Israel in order to create psychological trauma among the population. His, Hamas has done that before. They've had uh, hostages speak to camera and then sent them to us, the idea being that we would show it in the media and uh, traumatize the Israeli population. And by agreement, the Israeli media does not show these the Bibas husband was actually forced to make one of these videos. He was told that his wife and children had been killed and then was forced to go on camera and say whatever Hamas forced him to say. I do not believe this video ran in Israel, but this is not one of those videos that was produced in order to, to create psychological trauma. This came from closed circuit television in Khan Yunus. And I think it's just a matter of the IDF being in Khan Yunus, uh, penetrating deep into Gaza, recovering this footage, and uh, looking at it and discovering that uh, Shira and uh, the two children were alive on October 7th and had made it that far. And the Bibas family in Israel was consulted. Those who are remaining in Israel were consulted as to whether this footage could be shown, would they allow it to be shown? And they did say, yes, they allowed it to uh, be shown. They actually wanted it to be shown because they wanted to remind the world of just how horrific Hamas is and also remind the world that we still have hostages there. You know, uh, for a lot of the world, they've simply forgotten. It's uh, out of sight, out of mind. And so the Bibas family did approve of this going up. I thank you all for writing and for sending in your questions. I want to remind you again before concluding that it would be a huge, huge help to me. I just put the links there. If you could go to Apple and Spotify podcasts and give this podcast a rating, that is the best way to help get this out to the general public who doesn't know about it yet. And as well to email me at joel at joelchaznoff.com about that idea of doing more podcast episodes, sort of these magnifying glass on Israel concepts where we take certain aspects of Israeli life, Israeli society, and really hone in on them and get to know them as explainers to pass on some of that information to you so that you can know Israel better. Are you even interested in this kind of thing, specifically if it weren't live, but if it were just put up online? I want to thank all of you for coming out tonight. As always, you can reach me through my website, joelchaznoff.com. If you want the links to these live presentations, the best way to do that, really the only way to do that is to go to joelchaznoff.com 
and then sign up for the newsletter. Hebrew is magic in the foot of the page. I just put the address there. Continue to send in your questions. That's the best way to get them addressed in the podcast. Thank you so much for coming out again tonight. A safe, peaceful week for all of us. Shalom al Israel. Laila Inside Israel is produced by 188th Crybaby Productions Incorporated. Episodes are recorded online before a live audience. To get the links to future recordings, sign up at joelchaznoff.com slash podcast. If you have questions, comments, or to give feedback, and I know with all those Jewish listeners out there, you have feedback, drop us a note at joel at joelchaznoff.com. To learn more about me, my comedy, and books, and to sign up for my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you can do that at joelchaznoff.com. Thanks for listening.